0: Welcome back to Plato's Cave. I'm with Paul Russell. He is a professor of philosophy at Lund University, where he is also the director of the Lund Gothenburg Responsibility Project. Paul is also a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. And today he's been gracious enough to uh, to, to join me to talk about his 2008 paper, um, which I recently read and found very interesting, Free Will, Art, and Morality. And uh, Paul was also kind enough to send me um, a current uh, draft of a chapter for the Oxford Handbook of Moral Responsibility that he's working on. So, Paul, thanks uh, very much for doing this.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Charlie.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, can I ask really quickly, um, is there, I was just curious because, so I, I you know, I just read your bio um, and uh, do, is one of, are one of those universities kind of like your your home university and the other is a more secondary? Yeah, so position? I'm,
1: it's kind of a, without, uh, boring you or every, everybody else. I, the, the short version of this, I taught at UBC since 1987. And then in 2015, uh, I got this chance for um, a half-time research position in Sweden, which was originally based in Gothenburg. Mm. Um, but a couple of years on, uh, we decided that, that um, Lund would be a good base. So now we're in both Gothenburg and Lund, but I moved down to Lund. And um so I'm half time there, and now actually I'm more or less retired from UBC. Sad to okay. say, okay. of course I'm in denial about my age, <laughs> like everybody else. But that's <laughs> where I'm at. So I, I was at half time basically at UBC for the last five or six years. Okay. But now I'm more or less retired.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah, I was browsing a little bit about the Gothenburg Responsibility Project, um, and it, it's it seems very cool. I mean, it seems like the it's you're doing you know active research into responsibility and its connections with with law especially right
1: right so it's got that it's got um what we've done is i would say we we've not gone heavily into the applied ethics end of things although you can go that way i have some colleagues in gothenburg who are more heavily oriented towards that responsibility medical ethics business ethics that kind of stuff um But mostly we are into kind of normative ethics, moral psychology, as you say, Mm. responsibility in the law, action theory, that kind of range of stuff.
2: Mm. Yeah. Uh,
1: So that's we've tried to give it a little bit of identity so that it has a a kind of focus that way. And it's not just um, a kind of no brand kind of thing, but (laughs) some kind of identity.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's Um, it's nice. Yeah, it looks like a very interesting project. How, How long has that been going on? So
1: that started in 2015. I should, okay. you know, give a, a thank you, a public thank you, if I can, to uh, um, the Swedish taxpayers, basically, because they fund it pretty massively. So um, it started in 2015. It's a it's we're incredibly lucky. It's a 10 year project, um, and so we've had we've got a cluster now of PhDs. That's the kind of core. We've got six seven uh, PhDs. Um, and we have, I have some other colleagues um, who, Gunnar Bjornsson was the person in Sweden who was connected with it. He's at um, Stockholm. Um, um, Andres Zighetti is my associate director. He's at Linköping, but also coming down to Lund now. And Matt Talbert, who you, I'm sure you may well know his work, um, who has been at West Virginia and has been connected with the project. Um, for several years now, as well. So those are the sort of senior people, and then of course we've got people that bloomed as well. They're very good people in practical philosophy, mm. uh, Jürgen Pettersson, uh, people of that sort. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice.
0: Um, nice cluster. Yeah. A great, a great clustering of people. Um so yeah I want to I want to get into the paper but you know it struck me I I actually don't know um how how long have you been working in in responsibility topics and what actually made you kind of get into to that area in the first place
1: Well you just shared your age with me and it shocked <laughs> me and mortified me um uh, yeah I go back I I didn't know Plato <laughs> I'm interested <laughs> in him, but I didn't even know him yeah. um, so actually, really, this started. Um, I, I would say my my major interest actually, I um, in the early eighties when I started as a PhD student in Cambridge, mm. um, in the UK, and actually my early interest was in the philosophy of history and freedom and responsibility. And actually, way back when it was in the Marxist theory of history and problems of freedom relating to that. Mm. And then, so I was working with people like Jerry Cohen, G. A. Cohen, if you know his work. Um, but then I got um, I sort of moved through my interest in Hume and responsibility. So that's I would say now this is my fourth decade, fifth decade I'm heading into.
0: Wow, that's it awesome. Sound good.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, be six. I'll be lucky.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it sounds good from the perspective of, you know, you probably know what you're talking about if you're in your fifth decade at this point. I,
1: I like I like the cautious probable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, oh, you know, there
1: might be another way of
0: putting it. Sure, sure, should, should, and probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully we'll find out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you certainly know more than I do. Um, that being said, I, I did. Um, I really, I liked your paper a lot. Um, it's very. I think you know. I'll, I'll post it as I as I do all the papers for for people I talk with. Um, but it's. I think it's very accessible. I mean, there's you know, as any, you know, academic paper, there's some terminology and, and stuff, but um, it's a very, it's a very nice paper. And it has a, a a kind of a neat, you know, it's the central move to the paper, I think, can be understood um, by most people. And um, the way I understand the, the central move, and you can correct me if I misunderstand it, is that, you know, basically, you point out that, you know, look, in these very common domains, you know, athletics, or art, or, Uh, musical ability, you know, things like that, we make value judgments all the time about people's abilities. Um, We say, you know, person X is a good artist, uh, someone is a a clutch soccer player, something like that. Um, And we never kind of have to go into questions of determinism to make those judgments. And then you simply ask the question, well, you know, why think that we have to do that for uh, responsibility judgments or responsibility evaluations? And the answer that you end up you know, answering your own question with is, no, we don't have to. Um, So that seems all correct to (laughs) you.
1: That's, that's exactly right. That's a basic idea, Jordan. And it's, you know, it's an odd thing as you say, because um, some of these, uh, um, these academic areas like the free will problem become more and more kind of introverted and people start taking for granted what the problems are and what they aren't. And you're quite right. Something that struck me, this was actually the the prompt there is, is you may have noticed was Robert Kane's uh, really interesting book on the significance of yeah. free will, where he takes a strong libertarian incompatibilist line. And one of the things I found really stimulating was his effort to actually say, we care about free will for reasons that really go beyond just responsibility issues. We care about being an individual. We mm. care about being uh, creative. We care about making achievements and contributions. And that just struck me as kind of if you want existentially or phenomenologically just true. So it's a funny thing, as you know, about the free will issue. It's a bit like God and the soul. Um, It's one of these issues that um, resonates. It's not just a theoretical problem, like, you know, what's the causal relation? People might be interested in that, but they don't get too excited on the whole about it. But with free will, that's different because I think it relates to people's sense of themselves. Yeah. And the, the value of being a human being and what it involves. So that's how I kind of got into it, as you say, with this um, concern about the relationship between freedom and morality, and on the other hand, freedom and things beyond morality like art, and mm. even then down to the more mundane stuff like sports and whatnot, and mm-hmm. just ordinary professional achievements where, as you say, we evaluate, evaluate each other and our activities all the time, but don't seem so worried about free will.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you, you make um, some some sort of a remark about this in the in the unpublished proof that you sent me, you know, this is like a a topic that is at the core of not only our conceptions of ourselves, but our interactions with others, too. So it's not like these other questions in philosophy, like is knowledge a justified true belief or not, you know, like that. not a lot you could argue in practicality hinges on your answer to that. Right. But these yeah. these questions are not like that at all. Yeah. Yeah. um and yeah that's that, I mean that's something that makes me just like super I, I've just gotten engrossed in this topic you know since um taking a class that kind of touched on it it's my senior year and I just I love this topic so much because of that yeah, um
2: yeah
0: it
1: sort of engages it that much deeper and it does of course um as you say I mean you mentioned the connection between the, uh, these issues in law so one of the things a lot of people really feel is, you know, we have a whole legal system built on top of our moral assumptions, and our moral assumptions are really based in terms of on top of our metaphysical self-conception that we're responsible free agents. Mm. Yes. So yeah, it has big practical
0: payoff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned. So you mentioned the remarks about that Robert Kane has made on this, um, and that was one thing I wanted to kind of ask you about because. One, so, you you know, in the paper, you kind of set up one of your main targets is the libertarian. Um, this person who believes that we have some sort of ca- contra causal free will, you know, we can kind of will things to be otherwise, um, even if the preconditions were the same in, you know, world A and world B, for instance. Um, I, you know, this is something I've I've had my views on a lot of these questions really battered around just talking with different people and reading different papers and everything. And this is this is one question that I've actually had an entire 180 on. And I'm curious what you think about this because it, it strikes me that, and and you kind of do touch this in the paper, but I I used to kind of say that it, a kind of very incompatibilist line that, like, oh, you know, free will makes no sense because determinism is true. And I read Uh, this paper recently by Susan Wolf, her first published paper in in 1980, Asymmetrical Freedom. And she made this crazy incisive point that I had totally missed where she says, you know, okay, well, look like to the incompatibilist who says that they, they make that conditional claim. Don't you realize that then you're hinging the condition of being responsible on indeterminism, right? So if you're saying determinism rules out moral responsibility or free will, the the converse would have to be true or the contra contrapositive. And then she points out that those conditions make no sense really. Because in a in a world, and I'm curious what you think about this, because she totally persuaded me that a world in which we do have libertarian freedom is a world in which I think responsibility might even make less sense than a determined world, because your actions would just be almost not connected to your you, you, you would be able to act as though your current action or your current state of mind would have no connection to who you were in the past. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just strikes me as extremely almost incoherent. And, and I'm I'm curious your thoughts on that. So this,
1: this Jordan is, I'm sure, you know, is the old dilemma of determinism all the way back. And the worry is that um, if determinism, as you say, if determinism and necessity poses a problem, you know, worries about the agent couldn't have done otherwise, the agent was fated, all these kinds of um, what Daniel Dennett calls bugbears and bogeymen, on <laughs> that horn yeah. of uh, necessity or determinism. But as you say, then, if you want to, if you, uh, in Wolf's style, or, but it's uh, a fundamental point, um, if you want to deny that and you want to say there's an incompatibility, an incompatibility there, then the worry is, so how is indeterminism going to help? Mm. enhance freedom give you the kind of freedom you need for responsibility and then it becomes very difficult for the libertarian to say something about that and actually that does relate a little bit to Keynes' work just since i was referencing him because he is a libertarian and an incompatibilist is acutely aware of that and i don't know if you know his work but he tries to as it were um, um rescue libertarianism from panicky metaphysics that's Pierre <laughs> Strawson's term yeah. And kind of metaphysical um, extravagance mm. and tries to give it a more naturalistic account. But it's an interesting question myself, as much as I admire Kane's work, I don't think this succeeds either. For just the reason you're suggesting, there's still this worry about the kind of luckiness. It's a famous lucky objection, luck mm. objection that applies to libertarianism. And of course, then you're into this is a familiar territory for fundamental philosophical problems. If you can't live on the horn of necessity and you can't live on the horn of indeterm- necessity and determinism, you can't live in the horn of indeterminism and chance, then it looks like skepticism falls. But then you get, from my point of view, then you get into the implausible conclusion that uh, you, you have to somehow live your skepticism. And I think I'm, I'm skeptical about that. So <laughs> yes. now we're in a real mess.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, <laughs> you, that's, you, but...
1: that's what we've been at for a long time
0: yeah yeah you do a good job in the in the paper of kind of um showing just how messy the current debate is because i mean it does seem like no one really has a great answer and and you sort of you know try to forge your own path out of the wilderness there yeah yeah, yeah. so um, i think
1: yeah for what it, there that's exactly right um during my own work Is to try and suggest that when when you're in that position for a long time philosophically, then you have to start asking yourself if there's something wrong with the question and the conception of solutions that you're looking for.
0: Yeah, yeah. I had, I did, I wanted to ask you about that. But but before we get there, I just wanted to kind of um, maybe maybe for people who haven't read the paper or who haven't read it as closely, um, you you kind of you know you go through these um, three axes of um kind of like ways that we evaluate people in these and you know you you start out with these very what should be easy to agree to um areas like aesthetics or or uh sports um and so the axes are ability opportunity and effort that's one and then the second is performance and achievement and the third is assessment and evaluation Um, and so maybe if you could just say a little bit about those three
1: right so that's this really goes back to your original point about the the morality art relationship. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, this is part of my point of entry into this paper was to say that, you know, there's something that's not seemingly completely unique about the morality situation. So if you take art as an obvious case where we care about being agents, mm-hmm. care about being individuals, care about freedom in some sense to manifest our, our individuality. As you say, we, and we've got it, I mean, philosophy, for those of us who are philosophers, you can use that as an example itself, which is, um, there's a question, you know, it takes some measure of intelligence to get into a philosophy problem and certainly to say something interesting about it. So there's got to be some ability there. Mm. And that, as we all know, depends a lot on what your opportunities are for education and exposure. I mean, your own track record as an undergraduate Finding philosophy as you go along is just a case of this. There's a certain degree, if you want, of luck even about that.
0: Yeah, a huge degree. A huge degree for yeah. so
1: many people. Who's your who who are you exposed to? What institution do you go to? And yep. what what chances do you have? And opportunities do you have? Yeah. And then so there's and then of course there's another element which is uh, the effort element, which seems a little. It's kind of an interesting one that one because it seems a little bit more of coming from within. Mm rather than vulnerable to what nature the natural lottery gives you or what social conditions give you, but something you find within, although Mm. we can talk more about that, but even that is problematic. Yes. Um, When you start reflecting (laughs) enough. And then as you say, that's your kind of, I would put it this way, that's your platform. So you can think about art like that. Mm -hmm. The example is, you know, I give is Mozart. So Mozart's born with this enormous talent, lucky him, um he's born with a parent his father was able to teach him and so on and so forth and of course he had the discipline to make something of all that and then you get into the performance and achievement aspect that he, where he achieved so much and he had such massive um, um, contributions and significance and so on and so forth and then of course there's the evaluative aspect the third aspect is we look at we have normative standards about what these practices are, whether it's music or philosophy or morality. And they all seem to have this, as you say, core. This is the core analogy. They all have this kind of structure and we have standards of response. Uh, what's an appropriate way of evaluating people? What seems like fair evaluation? What's mm-hmm. unfair? What and that in, in the case of morality, it looks like excuses and exemptions operate here. So there's that deep structural, as you say that uh, on, on this analysis that I give, there's that kind of deep, seemingly deep structural parallel. And then the question is, what's the significance of that for morality once you start seeing that?
0: Mm, yeah. And and just a clarifying question. So, so when you say, um, because I think I, I totally agree with this if I read you correctly. So when you say, you know, there's the, um, and these are very sort of, local or pragmatic distinctions you're making. You know, there's the the ability that you're born with. And that's obviously luck. You know, I I'm not going to be lucky enough to be a pro basketball player because I was born with the height of 5'10. Like it's just not right. going to happen, you know? Um Likewise. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so so there's an obvious kind of local sense in which there's only luck involved there. I mean, I guess you you know you could be malnourished growing up and be even shorter or something, you know, something like that. But but again, that might be luck too. Um <clears throat> But then I take it that you're not making a metaphysical distinction. It's more of a, a pragmatic distinction between that and then sort of the um, the effort uh, that you put into that. So so Cain would be making a metaphysical distinction there by saying that you have this sort of contra-causal effort or your will. And you, yeah. if I understand you, aren't going out on the limb that far. You're just saying, look, like there's this very real kind of if you don't <clears throat> ask too many questions about it there's this obvious and clear distinction between your presets and then what you do with those almost. Right. Yes.
1: Well, you know, this, this does go, it goes beyond just free will. This goes very mm-hmm. deep into our social conditions and our, if you want our ideological conception. And you know, as an American, I think, cause I think of America as a little bit, the home of this ideology, if I could put it this way, although it's not unique to America and it has origins that go far beyond that. <clears throat> but there is this idea of the self-made person. Mm-hmm. So You know, that this is kind of fundamental. If I was to put it in a kind of political context, you might say that in the capitalist ideology, there's the idea that there's opportunity for everyone. And if you want to make it, it's up to you. (laughs) So it's just, you know, um, you might, you can package it in a hundred different ways, but God's given everyone this opportunity to make something of themselves. And if things don't work out, it's your problem, not bad luck. Mm. Um, so there's this kind of aspiration for it's uh, the way I would put it is it's like it's a huge optimism about the human condition which in some ways is quite admirable but it, that's the effort component which is we can make ourselves we can be self-creators and we can find a pa- there's always a path ahead for us
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we're not just victims of fate and that of course is an admirable disposition in many ways except when it becomes completely untruthful about what's actually happening in society and to individuals Mm -hmm. and even to ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When it becomes, don't, you know, poor people just don't work hard. That's when it becomes, yeah, 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 exactly.
1: It has that counterpart. And I think there's a responsibility, um, you know, so if you end up in the prison system, that's because you've made bad choices and Mm. it's all about you a lot of reflection this is this is the complicated part is i i i don't want to be a skeptic about that but i also want to think as part of this effort notion you could have made a moral effort lots of people have bad conditions and bad social environments bad upbringing mm-hmm. and that's the effort compartment so if you want their opportunities seem damaged to take that first platform that i that we were talking about the the the, the notion of opportunity and ability so the kind of assumption there is that effort sort of moralizes that situation such that the freedom you have as an individual is to always to overcome whatever the contingencies are that are thrown your way. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to performance and achievement, you can always do it if you make the right kind of effort. hmm. I'm always imagining, you know, you see successful sports athletes sitting there with their Olympic medals, saying, "I just want to say to all you kids back at home, just keep trying because <laughs> anybody can make it." And I'm thinking that's a nice message in a way. But
0: but, but no, like no one really. Not not everyone can No. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. So so if I'm understanding you correctly, we can we can talk totally consistently about effort without. That That doesn't tie you to being a libertarian. and it, And it doesn't weaken the sense of effort either. Exactly. Okay. And okay. And
1: that's an important point, Jordan. That's exactly right from my point of view, because um, there's a metaphysical notion of effort, which sort of, and this goes if you know Kant's philosophy, there's this notion of a kind of transcendent rational will that allows you to step outside of everything that's true about your contingent circumstances and find some kind of motivation that transcends all of that. But as you say, you don't have to go that way. Um, You can still, um, if you want within compatibilist terms, um, uh, emphasize the importance of effort and the significance of it. But the worry then is where does the effort come from?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. And there's
1: going to be a background. This is the more skeptical it move from some points of view, the skeptical worry or the, the the threat to that is that even when people, if you're the kind of person who's resilient enough to make an effort, there's probably some explanation for why you're like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. Like that. Yeah. I I don't have any control over the limits of my own effort in some sense. I mean, you, you right. can't will more willpower. Like it just, at some point it ends. Yeah. It,
1: it becomes yeah. A, a kind of vicious regress and then yeah. you get into, weird libertarian metaphysics because in order to stop that regress, you've got to start introducing something a little spooky, like (laughs) the pure self, the rational self or the noumenal self or something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's always interesting. You know, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a tongue in cheek kind of response Mm -hmm. to a libertarian, but it's like, you know, well, if you really do have that libertarian free will, you know, why aren't you just the perfect person? Why don't you have, you know, 10 percent body fat and why haven't you published and all that because yeah, if you can just will more willpower you know why yeah. why stop yeah and,
1: well yeah. because i guess you're a bad person <laughs> if it's not <laughs> yeah. happening that's yeah their
0: answer. yeah it, yeah it just collapses into like a puritanical view at, the, at that it's point it's your
1: fault if they're right you know? it's your fault
0: that it's but, your fault yeah. all the way down yeah all, right. the, actually
1: yeah. that's yes as you say all the way down and that's a, a, it's a really important qualification in
0: yeah yeah so so okay with with that understanding which i'm I'm happy to have, have gotten from you because then i do fully agree because because i i didn't think that you were kind of trespassing into spookier metaphysics but i wanted to confirm um no. so so okay so that seems so i totally buy that then that we do always make these distinctions uh, and we never ask about determinism um or at least You know we rarely do maybe we do or not i will have to see but but you say you know that when we're considering those kind of standards of evaluation that there are um natural kind of fairness questions that arise and and you list them in the paper they are is the standard of evaluation the right or correct standard has this standard been properly applied to the agent and or the performance and then are the conditions and circumstances of evaluation and assessment fair and reasonable and, um, and I was actually, uh, the funny thing is, is I was, I was kind of thinking, you know, I was trying to find examples of this in my own life and, you know, like applying to the philosophy programs kind of came up and they're in evaluating me. I mean, they're going to be asking these questions, you know, does, does he fit the, the standards and qualifications that we're looking for in an applicant and, and determinism, I mean, you're right. It just doesn't come into it. I mean, they are trying to get a glean of. My academic abilities and character and who i 'm going to be in the program and, and all these things, and you never have to kind of regress into determinism um, to answer those and so that that point does just seem empirically right to me um,
1: yeah i mean yeah. This, this this comes up with the art example as well, which is um, you know it's interesting because we might um, as educators say, be interested in figuring out. Um, what makes, a, what makes it possible for a student to succeed and what kind of barriers operate that make them fail. Hmm. So there is a sense in which, although it may not be put in terms of free will and determinism, there's, uh, I wouldn't want to exaggerate the, the sense in which we're just from an ordinary point of view unreflective about background conditions, because you might worry, as you say, about just to take something as simple as an application, an application to a graduate program. You know i know when i look at it i think so some students as it were you think about them in terms of the potential or the obstacles they've had to overcome those seem like legitimate considerations to me yeah so i'm a little bit reluctant to just think about them cold in terms of what's the essay like what's the, the <laughs> who are essay. they in
0: this moment yeah yeah, yeah yeah exactly
1: just kind of um what's their grade point average that may not tell me a lot of things that seem relevant. And in that sense, you might start leading into issues about background conditions. And as you know, the issues about diversity and equity now mm. carry a lot of baggage that seems to me not unrelated or unconnected with worries about um, social justice in relation to people having real opportunities and their abilities and potentials being properly recognized. Mm so there are kind of this sense that the free will problem is funny because in some sense it gets hyper abstract but in another sense it bleeds almost um subconsciously into a lot of very deep social issues some of which we're dealing with yeah for better or worse uh, in various ways right now
0: you know i was uh, that thought had kind of crossed my mind too and and i almost wonder you know it's it's a little bit confounded the, the whole point about you know have you overcome anything you know to in order to kind of you know get where you are apply to this program i could imagine two responses to that i could imagine one saying you know well all that question is is really kind of trying to dig at other present tense character traits that they might have right so if you know that one applicant really overcame a lot of struggles they might be more resilient and that is kind of a present and forward-looking trait right. or you know you could have what might be kind of the more hard and compatibilist response is like oh okay this explains some deficit in their application right you know i was only a philosophy minor because i my high school didn't have a lot of you know didn't didn't yeah so it, it it's the, there's this weird kind of confounding dichotomy there
1: there is and, and the other side of that so um, as it, were, it can cut it, as you say. It can cut in two directions. One direction is to make you much more sensitive to the things that have been obstacles and limits, yeah. where someone's potential may not be properly realized, and that can be true in, in ethical life, artistic life, sports life—you name it. We're yeah. kind of sensitive to that. But the flip side, isn't it true as well, Jordan? And this is the side that actually I want to emphasize from a kind of more compatibilist-friendly point of view, which is you don't want to read that that um, becomes so sensitive to those kinds of issues. If you want those issues about luck and history and fate of those kinds of concerns to start denying that there are real differences between people, mm-hmm. because of just to use the example I give, if you've got Mozart, you might well think, gosh, lucky, lucky person. <laughs> um, <laughs> just won the, won the artistic lottery in terms mm-hmm. of natural talent, best circumstances, best training, so on and so forth. But it's still true. He's a fantastic gifted person where some people want to say, oh, there's no real merit there unless somehow it was all coming from him without any of these contingencies. But that seems crazy. Mm -hmm. And then more negatively on the converse side, as happens in education, there are people who you have to just say, well, there may be a lot of reasons why this person is never going to be a very good musician, philosopher, (laughs) football player or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but they're just no good. Yeah. And so we don't want them in our program, or we don't want them in our in our team, or we don't want them in our community if they're morally damaged. Mm. Um, so that's the flip side, which is the skeptic seems to me in danger of wanting to sort of deny the reality and the importance of those distinctions.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, th- this is sort of one of the most, I guess my most, perhaps my most skeptical question about this paper. 'cause i I think I really, really like it, but I'm wondering about there might be some small points where where I might diverge from from what you argue, and I'm wondering if this is one of them so I wonder if if there's a really kind of more sharp distinction than the paper makes between something like evaluation and then something like dessert attitudes right yes. so so I wouldn't it's funny if you if you you know if I hand this paper to someone and I say, read this with respect to desert judgments, I kind of want to distance myself from the paper. But if I hand them the paper and say, read this with respect to moral evaluations, and maybe kind of reactive attitudes, then I love yeah. the paper. Yeah. And yeah, 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 yeah. So so please, yeah, what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well, I think that's true. It's a good point. And I think, so for example, someone who comes to mind is colleague Dirk Paraboun's work, you know, Dirk's hard incompatibilist. Mm-hmm. He's this kind of a skeptic of a sort, but As you say, the more nuanced position that he would take up would be something like, well, of course I recognize that there are these distinctions to be drawn, but what really disappears here once you become sensitive to these background conditions influencing the way agents are and why they are the way they are, whether in morality or or whatever, it's what, we're, what seems to evaporate, as you say, is dessert. Mm. But dessert does a lot of work here. So I'm sympathetic to this, but in a qualified way, okay. which is I think there are conceptions of dessert that are metaphysically loaded and that run quite deep in our society in terms of our self-conception that actually involve this notion that we are fundamentally self-creators or um, originators of our character, certainly in, in, in ethics, of our character, conduct, and motivation, that there's some power of that, and that that notion of dessert, as it were, sits on top of that kind of metaphysical self-conception, and it's normatively very demanding, if I can put it that way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Dirk, and I share this with Dirk, and other uh, skeptics of that sort, um Dirk Peribum is skeptical about that and therefore thinks that kind of dessert, that notion of dessert, what he calls basic dessert, evaporates. That sounds a little bit like what you're thinking as well, if I if I've got you right, Jordan. Yeah, I think so. But, but here's the way in which I think I I diverge from this, is which is I what I'm skeptical about is that 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 any any credible notion of dessert has to be, as it were, metaphysically loaded in that way. Mm. I still think that there's something that's left which is as it were it's not just a matter that you can make distinctions but we still as it were see people um Mm. i might understand whether it's myself or other people as really having all kinds of contingencies of luck that shape the kind of character i am but fundamentally for me i this is the compatibilist my compatibilist side i have powers of uh moral capacities and moral powers of self-understanding self-interpretation self-reflection that make it not just that I have these kinds of I'm stuck with these kinds of evaluative <laughs> commitments I've got but that I'm someone who is able to engage in a much more sophisticated way and there's a an, from my point of view a robust notion of dessert that survives that's in the moral context mm. and then just by way of this paper that we're talking about with the artistic analogy would be similar, which is, of course, there are people who have been fortunate or unfortunate in relation to their artistic or intellectual powers and abilities. But I don't think it means that the dessert evaporates there. You still got people who are high achievers and understand what they're doing and are inside that practice, if I can put it that way, slightly mm-hmm. bit Um, And that that's a robust notion of dessert so that you can really say, that philosophy student is a really interesting student. Um yeah, they have privilege of all sorts, maybe, mm. but they're really interesting and able and sharp. Mm. Um, and um, I don't see in those cases, contrary to the skeptical move that dessert evaporates in those in those circumstances,
0: okay. That's very interesting. i I think I would sign on the dotted line there if we weren't. That's interesting. I I almost feel that way. That certainly applies to something like reactive attitudes, like, um, you know, for listeners, something like, you know, blame, resentment, indignation to be the negative or or gratitude, you know, love on the positive side. Right. I, there seems to me to be this kind of, uh, I wonder if there's not more of a sharp distinction than, than is the case in some of the literature between those attitudes and then and then desert practices almost right so i yes. you know it i wonder if if what you're saying because what you're saying just lands for me completely with respect to those attitudes but then but then when we move into you know practices i i i i mean my current position because you know it's it's going to get pushed around by some paper at some point is yeah. that I don't I don't know how dessert practices of sort of revenge or retribution or, you know, in the lay terms, like getting even with someone in a fundamental sense, right? Th- those don't seem to hold for me whether or not determinism is true. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm totally sympathetic. I, I, I hope it do not sound like I'm just co-opting your position here, but I am actually really sympathetic to this. And I, again, I, I, I think I... Um, I'm side because my worry, in fact, is that there's, um, in, in this area, there's a tendency, just as you suggest, uh, Jordan, to collapse issues of responsibility and retribution. Hmm. So I share, actually, I'm much more skeptical about our retributive practices. Okay. And, and how they're connected to our reactive attitudes. So one worry I have about some people who want to, as it were, vindicate the reactive attitudes is they see this as sort of moving straight into, as it were, um, vindication of retributive practices. Mm. And I think, in fact, those two issues are quite separate. So our reactive attitudes might be quite uh, well justified, but we have quite different set of issues about, okay, so our reactive attitudes are justified, but our retributive practices based on those um justified? Are they effective? Are they uh, mm. constructive? Um, we have different set of issues. They are, if from my point of view, more utilitarian-oriented, less yes, backward-oriented, yes, yeah. less dessert-oriented. Okay. So um, there's a lot to say about that, but I think some skeptics, for what it's worth, are actually in a way that I'm sympathetic to. They're motivated by their skepticism about retribution my objection to them is that they that they present that as skepticism about oh, okay those two are
0: separate that you know that makes a lot of sense to me and i, and I think you're right that those two issues are definitely to t- to some degree conflated in some literature yeah 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 i think i think you're right i so I, you know that's that's so interesting i mean i was reading um i recently read wolf's 81 paper the importance of free will and then because I, I know you said it in one of the papers summers um 2007 um rejection of that you know that kind of view yeah. and yeah it's it's so interesting because it seems like I, I i just buy wolf's point and i know and i know tamler summers you know doesn't d- disavow that paper currently he's now double reverse it, yeah. yeah yeah he's yeah, he's, yeah. he's full strawsonian at this point yeah. um yeah. it you know, it seems, it seems totally correct that we both can't and shouldn't jettison reactive attitudes because, you know, Wolf and Strassen are just totally right. I mean, that, that is what constitutes interpersonal life. You know, I mean, you know, we're not that close, but if I was, if I were treating you as something to be managed, something, something, you know, some object to be manipulated, that, that does, I mean, that just vitiates interpersonal and moral life completely. And I think that that, you know, th- that is like the core of why um, reactive attitudes survive happily with, with the truth of determinism. Um, and, and it's funny because, yeah, what you were saying made me kind of think about, you know, I've, I've recently changed my mind again about, about the, the basis of retributivist, pun- retributivist punishment, where I thought previously, you know, it doesn't make any sense because determinism is true. And now I think it makes no sense whether or not determinism is true. Um Precisely for those kind of consequentialist reasonings yeah yeah so it's it's I'm glad that you make the distinction, yeah,
1: yeah, well the, the point you're making about uh, the relationship between personal life and reactive attitudes or skepticism about, about reactive attitudes, you know this is a big a big uh area of debate right now and really coming out of p f Strawson's freedom and resentment because Strawson famously argued that. If we get rid of the as you were saying, if we get rid of the reactive attitudes, we're left with this kind of objective stance where we're stripped of our interpersonal relations, and it seems kind of disutopian and <laughs> horrific. yeah, and there's certainly been, as I'm sure you know, um efforts by various people. Paraboom is one very important person um r j. Wallace is another to kind of separate and say look the the more reactive attitudes we could maybe get rid of them and still retain a lot of our interpersonal life and there's a there's a big debate about how much that can or cannot be done Mm. but i share the even even if that kind of um modified proposal to um slightly optimistic proposal that we could strip ourselves of our negative pernicious reactive attitudes and all our retributive dispositions. This is, I think of this as a kind of Californian move to go very mellow, <laughs> none of the negativity, feel positive, just think how we can help one another. We can treat people instead of punish people, all this kind of stuff. Um, it's an interesting question, just how dehumanizing that itself is. And that's that goes to my own, and maybe this is your sensibility here too, Jordan. Um, my sense is that there 's something um, dehumanizing about not treating people who really have um, sophisticated moral capacities as if they are really just objects of treatment and therapy and moral education
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and i I feel that this is a debate that 's come back again in the 50s you know there was b f Skinner if you know his stuff, Walden too all this kind of kind of uh, effort to be sort of skeptical about responsibility and freedom and have a more positive therapeutic approach. And it's come back again, as you know, in these kind of contemporary uh, skeptical views about responsibility. Mm. But I share this kind of uh, worry that although it's humane at one level because it's trying to get rid of these nasty retributive practices the worry is that it becomes quite dehumanizing um, and depersonalizing in its actual institutional social form
0: yeah i have a lot of mixed thoughts about this question i on one hand i'm very very sympathetic to a sort of an asymmetry perspective on this where it seems like there is something obviously true and i've tried to kind of be a little bit introspective about this just in kind of reading this literature and you know what, what there's that old kind of aphorism you know a, anger is uh, like a poison it it just destroys the vessel it's in you know i butchered it but it's, it's something yeah. like that right yeah. and there, there's something there's something kind of true about that with respect to um certain sentiments like revenge right or, or this kind of need to get even with someone in some deep sense right and those, you know, as we already said that there are practices that can be disassociated from reactive attitudes, but but I even think there are sort of reactive attitudes more based in that sentiment. Right. And it, th- there is like a very happy jettisoning of those that I don't, that I don't think is completely irrational, but at the same time, s- straying too far into that or, or having that as sort of a, um, you know, a, a predisposition when encountering people does seem to use Wolf's phrase to to make our relationships take on this hollow ring, you know, as she says, yeah, yeah. which is, I love that because it, it does. I mean, you know, she taught you, we, we can still have a certain type of love. We can still have a certain type of friendship, right? But it, but they are degraded in some small sense. Yeah. They, they, yeah. It
1: sounds kind of ersatz and phony somehow.
0: Yeah. And, and, and there is this, um, I almost get this like mental image of there's this like distancing or this film that's like created between you and another person. You know, when you're, when you're managing someone, you're not, I actually just, uh, I'm trying to work on this paper. I presented it at a conference recently and got some, like some really good feedback about this, but there there is, there's actually a loss to the person's standing, but there's a loss to you as well. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 Because you have just put up that film and the paper I was presenting on is trying to kind of walk this line between acknowledging that that is a a, a real um, it's a real moral cost, but there are some very clear certain circumstances wherein it's still the moral thing to do because of the outcomes of of allowing yourself to embody those reactive attitudes. So so I think it's a clear. This is a circuitous answer to your question but it's kind of a clear uh, well, I, a fine I think line
1: Strassen, the the kernel of the kind of psychological and ethical truth that's operating there and a kind of resistance to going that way of getting you know this ideal of purging ourselves of anger yeah. and because it's all negative and it's destructive and of course there's some truth in that and, there, and there's it's very important to think about anger and how it can as you said poison yourself as well as everybody else but there's something there's something uh, it can from my point of view for reasons you were alluding to I don't think it could be the whole truth and Strawson gets it I think the nub of this which is when you what we actually care about is we care about this this, this is P.F. Strausson, he puts it the um, fundamental attitudes and intentions that other people show and manifest towards yeah. towards ourselves and others and so. I think what some you, you, maybe you share this was there are some circumstances where I think there's something ethically wrong with someone who doesn't get angry about certain kinds of things. Mm. So you can use a kind of extreme example, but you take something like the Holocaust. And I think, do I want to just have kind of a sense of, oh, I'm disappointed that the <laughs> Nazis behaved this way? Yeah. Um, I wish it hadn't been like this. What they did was wrong, but there's an explanation for why they were the way they were, such that they don't have any kind of fundamental dessert. Something strikes me as, from my point of view, sure. my critical point of view, is I think there's something wrong with that response because it's, and where, what seems to be wrong is it's disengaged from showing a genuine value because the way we show we value something like, not behaving like this barbaric way towards other human beings is we have emotional engagement. Mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, motivates us and it can motivate us in destructive ways. But for just as you were saying, that makes me very, my own instinct about this, or if you want intuition, and I think it can be articulated and defended along these lines, is that the reason we don't, we feel uncomfortable about that is it shows a lack of proper valuing of what's going on here so yeah.
0: yeah 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 totally and i i wonder if there's um you know i wonder if there's almost some 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 importance to the distance that you that you take or, or that 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 exists rather between you and that group or you and that immoral person right so if you're right next to someone who's doing something heinous yeah there is because it's so linked to action there you know your attitudes like are are you going to step in and are you going to be as likely to step in if you're just "Mm, this kind of you know cold you know what what, you know no you just you just yeah yeah exactly you just want to get in there and do something about it right um
1: you mentioned tabler jordan you mentioned tabler summers and his double reversal as it were his 2007 (laughs) defense of the objectivity and then he and if I remember, I think this is on his book on relative justice. He talks about if you if you know that uh, work, um, he talks about the reason. One of the reasons he abandoned this was he was thinking about his own children, and if yeah. someone harmed one of his children, I think for most of us, certainly for parents or if we have close relatives, mm. you kind of immediately know that. I know that once or twice my 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 own children in this or that way have been. Thank, thank goodness, nothing terrible, but. If it's, as you say, that intimate relationship, that close relationship, the idea of switching off your reactive attitudes and not being angry with people who are harming them is just seems something, from one point of view, psychologically incredible, but from another point of view, ethically um, suspect.
0: Yeah, and I I totally buy that, but I wonder if there is this sort of duality of, of, um, of attitudes that can be held. So I don't have any children, but if someone... You know, I was talking about this with my best friend, actually, you know, if someone murdered my best friend right in front of me, would I want to kill that person with my own hands? Yes, I would. And yes, I probably would actually do it. Right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, Not so that's, well, yeah, well, for, yeah, exactly. Not a good idea. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> disclaimer. Uh, yeah. Disclaimer. And I said, probably would, yeah. <laughs> that's where that editing ability comes in. Yeah. Right? Right. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, I, but I only feel that, and I, and I think it's totally morally permissible to feel that, and maybe even we, you know, we might want to say obligatory to have that reaction in that moment, right? But at the same time, I think both me removed from that situation can say, "Well, yes, it's totally understandable and maybe even desirable to want to do that, but the, but the perpetrator would not deserve to have retribution in that sense, in a deep sense, in a dessert-based sense.
1: Yeah, that... Yeah. Well, wow. do you know the... Do you know, if, I, if I'm not throwing too much um, um, other work in, into this discussion, but I don't know if you know, Gary Watson's got a, a famous paper on uh, responsibility and the limits of evil.
0: Is this the 87 paper? Yeah, that's right. Okay, yeah, I love and, that
1: paper. And um, very influential paper. It's a very, very interesting discussion of Strawson's freedom and resentment Sympathetic but critical, but if you remember this, the centerpiece of that Watson article is the case of Robert Harris, who's this Californian murderer, mm. who horribly killed two teenage kids, cold-blooded. Um, and one of the things that um, is interesting in in the way um, the, the way Watson describes this case of Harris is. Harris isn't in any obvious sense crazy or schizophrenic. He knows mm. what he's doing. He even seems to understand that what hes he's got a sense of right and wrong. He knows that this is evil. Mm. Um, but somehow he's just actually, he, he, he's so damaged. Um, but the interesting thing is it sort of comes to the nub of your, the discussion we're having, which is there's this history that Robert Harris has that explains why he is, he had a horrible background, yeah. self-abused. So the way... Watson puts this together. He says that Harris is both a victimizer and a victim. Mm. And we have this, as as Watson describes it, we have this ambivalence where our reactive attitudes seem unstable because if we think about what he did, we trigger our strong, strong reactive attitudes. Mm. But if we think about what happened to him and why he is the way he is, we feel sympathy for him and he's so morally unfortunate. If this helps in terms of locating my own views about this my sense is that, um, as it were, um, I I don't think that I think there's still a. You mentioned the notion of desert. Obviously, the history shows that there's not this kind of strong notion of desert in terms of self creation and ultimacy that that some world views want to retain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I also think that it's bizarre to turn to someone like Robert Harrison just treat him like he's someone who, okay, you're just damaged. Um, We're going to try and help you now. We're not going to have these strong reactive attitudes. We can understand why we might do, but we're going to just kind of um, just be therapeutic here because in Mm. some sense that seems to fail to recognize his own kind of moral character and capacities, which are still there. Mm. So Harris to me isn't like, it's dehumanizing of Harris from a moral point of view, even in our own responses to him, to treat him like he's a dog or a bear or somebody who's completely brain damaged he's a much more difficult case so he's still if you want to me even although he's so hard to reach ethically he's still someone who's um um ethically as it were present to us and who we have it's dehumanizing not to recognize that
0: yeah and and i take it you might even be making the point that that our treatment of him in that way would be susceptible to the sort of mirror turn back onto ourselves almost in a way you know <laughs> Very much, yeah, yeah, and
1: then that, and of course, there's some sense in which we might look at ourselves and say, "Thank God." I, I think actually, to be um, Watson himself it, uh, indulges in some of this stuff. Thank God, it's not me. I'm fortunate. Yeah, yeah. And then it, well, you can play with that a little bit about what that significance of that is, but it it sort of ties up with the points you were putting to me earlier about retribution. I'm not so sure that it just the response of Robert Harris justifies strong forms of retribution. But I do think that it, there's something wrong if we don't have the appropriate kinds of reactive attitudes that recognize what mm. he did and what he's like, mm. whatever the story might be about his background. So that's the kind of position I want to occupy there, which is not skeptical, but okay. is more kind of what I call pessimistic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the chapter or, or section what six, or, I think, in in the Oxford um, handbook that, that you sent me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, this is a, this is something else I wanted to ask you. And actually the Watson paper is a perfect way to bring it up. So, so Watson says, um, you know, because he does that it's oh, so it's, it's if people haven't read it, it's a wonderful paper to read. It's yeah, really so good. Good. Um, yeah, really
1: good.
0: You know, he gives us the case of Robert Harris, you know, what should be the most quintessentially evil bastard that ever existed. Right. And then he gives us that backstory and, and the backstory is almost as horrible as even his, you know, um, as his deeds. And yeah. he has this phrase that it stuck out to me very strongly because he says, so Watson says, you know, you hear the crime, you have these yeah. attitudes and then you hear the backstory and you think, well, no wonder he did yeah, what he right. did. He has that exact phrase. Well, no wonder. Yeah. And the, what's interesting is that uh, to my eye, the, the well, no wonder is a substitute or a surrogate for well, he was determined in the wrong way. Yeah. And, I, and I wonder if determinism begins to creep back into the picture in yeah. exactly that sense. Yeah. He, he was unfortunate to be determined in the wrong way to be part of the moral community. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Watson well, almost slides. He's interesting because um, he almost slides into a skeptical position. <laughs> he starts off kind of being very sympathetic to Strawson. Then he describes his case, and basically he's saying, and I think he's right about this, that Strawson is strangely unconcerned about history and luck. Yeah. In a way that the Robert Harris case brings out. Mm-hmm. And then it's a little bit like Watson's own position is a bit, to my mind, slightly unstable, which is, he he describes it as this a, a sense of ambivalence, but it's almost like he's toying with skepticism because he's really thinking if history and luck matter in this way, as you say, the no wonder moment, Mm. Um, no wonder Harris is the way he is, then how much can we really uh, retain or remain committed to our reactive attitudes? But that's maybe the point at which I kind of jump off from him, because what I want to say is what we find, I think we find difficult in our kind of um, dominant self-interpretation of of, um, our our kind of moral self-image, is the idea that we might actually, as it were, be both free and responsible agents, understood in terms of having fairly robust capacities of um, understanding norms, understanding normative practices, having emotional responses that are related to that, if you want part of the moral life or moral community, and at the same time, putting these two together, being aware that we are subject to significant forms of fate and luck. And the Robert Harris case to me brings that out, but I have a different, I think I think um, Watson's position is that he's unhappy with that blending, whereas I want to say that's what's the truth about the human predicament. Mm. And just for what it's worth, my, my views there, just to people who might be listening to this and wanting to think about reading my views kind of approach closer to someone like Bernard Williams, if people are interested in his views, that's mm-hmm. the kind of branch that i i would move towards
0: yeah he if i read correctly he was involved uh, either your advisor or or on your committee when you were a yeah, supervisor
2: that's yeah. awesome that's yeah, so cool right. yeah
0: yeah guy was, was very
1: lucky
0: his i love his critique of of consequentialism it's it's and and like as someone who likes to think of himself as a consequentialist i even like it right <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> it's coming it's coming from a, from a strong place then yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's yeah, yeah. that good of a paper. Yeah, yeah, but his target, Williams' target here, is is what he calls morality, mm. which is maybe the really deep source of the, from my point of view, of the free will problem, which is there's a certain kind of, in, in my view, compatibilists and libertarians and skeptics tend to all share this deep assumption that as it were, whatever else is true, we can't have conditions in which agents are free and responsible and subject to fate and luck. Mm. But from the the point of view that I would defend, which is, I think, broadly sympathetic to the Williams-style view as well, um, that is just, that's how it is in ethical life. And we find that difficult to accept because that is kind of disturbing. So Robert Harris is disturbing to us. And then as you say, Jordan, that comes back and I realize I myself, you yourself are all yes. part of that predicament.
0: Yes. Yeah, we're we're mere versions of Robert Harris. <laughs> yeah. In, yeah. In that
1: very general sense. Hopefully not in the specifics.
0: No, no, no. That is not an admission of guilt <laughs> of yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I wonder, you know, I've been kind of I, I don't this isn't really a fully developed thought, but but I I'm wondering if there's almost this kind of weird, uncanny valley of of reactive attitudes and evil or something like that right where you know when people people in our lives are people with whom we are easily well adjusted and we just have happy relationships with them right these questions never arise because they almost don't need to right and then you know a friend betrays you in a minor way and these natural reactive attitudes come up and, and you want to deal with with resolving that conflict in a non-calculated way right but but if you walk the evil kind of far enough there's this weird uncanny valley of it where people do begin to almost look like the robert harris case of we, we, we i wonder if we switch from from reactive attitudes of blame indignation anger resentment to what went wrong, almost, or or this sort of you know th- th- them being determined in the wrong ways in some in some way? I, I don't know. I'm kind of I've been toying with that idea.
1: Well, I think this is quite important because I think in some sense the Robert Harris case or the Holocaust case, these very dramatic cases of kind of extreme evil or horrifying evil, in some sense can conceal the much more m- mundane, ordinary truths about our ordinary moral, everyday moral life and. I rather share this in terms of introspectively making clear what's actually going on in our experience of ethical life. Hmm. Um, So, as you say, with family and with friends, hopefully your relations are normally good and congenial, and we don't have it's not pressed upon us to start reflecting on how did things go wrong or what's the problem here. Hmm. But in fact, I think we all find in everyday moral life that you. Um, often step back both in relation to other people and say this kind of no wonder moment that you were talking about with, with Watson. You can sort of say, this person that I find really difficult and what they've done is really problematic or even objectionable. And maybe you're getting triggering strong and justified reactive attitudes. But at the same time, most of us can look and say, I can see how that person got into this situation. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with this, that, or the other, or they have this, that, or the other problem. But does that mean that they're not really responsible, that they don't really know what they're doing? No. Mm.
2: <laughs> that,
1: that's that's the move that I I can't follow it there. Or that if they're not basic dessert responsible or fundamentally self-origination responsible, then nothing really substantial is left. That's what I'm skeptical about.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. It is, it, I always am drawn back to kind of looking at this from the libertarian perspective because Yeah, I mean it. I wonder. I wonder if, kind of, you know, what's interesting is I, I was wondering if, um, if your project, you know, I was, I haven't spoken with, um, Manuel Vargas, um, from UC San Diego, but I was emailing with him a little bit. He was too busy to to come on the show, um, but 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 you know, he he kind of has this like revisionist view of of free will and moral responsibility, where he says, <clears throat> you know, just just like people used to think as water. As some one of the four fundamental elements, you know, um, we didn't, as we understood more and more about the universe, we didn't create some new element and call it water asterisk or whatever. We just changed the definition of water. And he kind of has that similar perspective on something like free will. You know, as we um, understand that no, there's really no reason to believe that you're causa sui or that you can step outside the stream of causation in, in any normal sense. We shouldn't invent some new word about it. We should just refine the the conception of free will. And I don't think that you have to endorse that paper, but there's a little bit of flirting with it in the 2008 paper, because you say, you know, we we just don't ask about those sorts of questions when we're making these judgments. Right. And I wonder, I mean, this is more a question for, for Vargas than you, but I, but I wonder if both of you might be, and you to a lesser extent, are committed to this project of almost, um, of disavowing people of these kind of lay conceptions of dualist, libertarian free will if you want to have that kind of revisionist um, project. I, I don't know, because no one thinks about water in that way anymore. And I, and I wonder if you have to do that with with those conceptions of free will.
1: What's the kind of true essence of responsibility? It's like looking for the the true platonic conceptual <laughs> truth of what is responsibility really.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: And maybe I misunderstood it um it's an interesting question because actually this does relate to what might be called responsibility pluralism so the question's a little bit like how many how many concepts of responsibility do we have and how stable is the concept that we and then we get into the question who's we here we (laughs) moderns we westerns we, we platonic christians who yeah um so, um, and that becomes a really interesting question. And then, the, and then, and then related to the notion of revision, um, you might have multiple ways of revising. And there's always been all the way back to people like Hobbes and Hume. Um, they've um, taken the view, which is that our ordinary concept may have built into it all kinds of illusions or fraudulent misunderstandings. Mm. So there's kind of, as you say, Jordan, is this kind of revisionist tradition that comes well into the it kind of merges with the compatibilist tradition all the way back. But the on top of the question of revising and what our ordinary view is or isn't and whether or not there's a stable, clear account of that to be given. Um, there's also the question of um Whether or not we just have one correct concept or not. Mm. And people like Williams, for example, challenge that. And I don't know if this example helps, but the example that comes to mind along these lines that you mentioned is it's like the problems of God. So some people think there's only one true conception of God. So if you're a Christian, you know, God is a personal God, an intelligent being, a benevolent being, all these essential attributes. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about God, there's only one true concept and either that god exists or it doesn't so don't bring in this deist conception that it's something that doesn't have moral attributes that's not really god you're just no better than an atheist Mm
2: -hmm. so we have something (laughs) like
1: the same kind of dynamic going on and the deist is something like a revisionist about our concept of god Mm. but then it's an interesting question of whether there's any coherent concept and how robust that concept might be and in the case of responsibility whether or not there's just one correct view and again we're getting into um, more interesting and complicated difficult stuff but my own view is kind of pluralistic about as it were there's a core fundamental set of features to our concept but that as it were um, different cultures and different circumstances will articulate and um, um, understand and interpret those features in different ways and there may not be one unique correct way
0: yeah yeah
1: maybe like justice is, is could be seen <clears throat> similarly it's historically and culturally located as it were
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah no that that's interesting and and I mean I think I buy that um I guess that's maybe an, a kind of a, a point where I've always disagreed with someone like Dan Dennett like I I just spoke with a couple months back uh, Greg Caruso about his new his new book with with Dennett and Dennett Dennett almost seems to he almost seems to deny that libertarians exist in a way or that people have these like lay I mean he doesn't do that explicitly obviously but but he almost seems to be very dismissive of well that's not a free will worth wanting and I actually agree with him about that but it almost seems like he's saying, well, no one even wants that free will. Whereas I, I think no, actually a lot of people do want that that yeah. free will. Philosophers, yeah. but he, but you know, especially um, you know, the 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 non-philosophical. Um yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's it's just um yeah,
1: I think there's a strain in compatibilism like that, which is um and Dennett, I sort of show you I I admire Dennett's work. Obviously, he's yeah really important, significant contributor to all these topics, but um there's slightly a feeling that um, he's tone deaf
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: to certain kinds of incompatibilist concerns. And actually my own work, what I call free will pessimism or critical compatibilism is actually a response to that. That I I, I feel like I, maybe like you, I, I understand what it is that incompatibilists and libertarians think they're aspiring to. And if we can't get that, there's a real loss there. Whereas Dennett wants to say, no, I'm moderately revising our views about, uh, speaking word of revision, I'm moderately revising our views, not radically, but we've got all the stuff we want. It's mm. all good. Don't worry about it. And don't let these bogeymen and these, what does he call them, gloom leaders or something? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Ben style
2: <laughs> Yeah, um,
1: And I find that comes too quickly and too easily to him. And there's more to it there. Yeah. yeah. Share that attitude
0: yeah yeah i i think the sense of there's more to it is a good place to end on because i'm I'm realizing that we're we're well over an hour closing in an hour and a half which it, it flew by for me and i just want to thank you again for doing this this is a ton well, of well i
1: enjoyed it thanks so much i just uh I, there's always a feeling with these it's um open-ended and so so interesting and yeah, i guess what we do is we just show that there's just so much to be said about it but thanks for your interesting questions and yeah suggestions.
0: yeah um on the note of of kind of, you know more to discover is the um so the proof you sent me, um that will be published in in the coming months, years with the Oxford um, Handbook yes. of more responsibility.
1: Yes, which, like all these handbooks, I edited one on him myself, and they're all they're it's like hurting uh, cats,
2: yes, <laughs> a group
1: of philosophers, so uh, uh, Dirk Perbo and. Dan and Elkin have been doing this and it's taken uh, a little while, but um, I think it's almost ready to come out.
0: Okay, great. So yeah. I, think,
1: I think it should be out, I think in early 2022.
0: Oh, really? Okay, excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because so, I, yeah. I really, I liked this chapter a lot. I mean, it, I excellent. I hope to be able to recommend it because it, it does, you um you place a lot of the positions with respect to each other very well. Yeah.
1: Thanks, thanks, Jordan. I really, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, and thanks. I'm, I'm looking forward to following your other interviews too. They're really interesting people. You're, you're, you're pulling in putting together quite an interesting series.
0: If you're still listening, thank you very much for uh, sticking around. I really, I, I really loved uh, talking to Paul. I mean, we had an awesome conversation. i you know, I had totally lost track of time, and uh, and I hope that you really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I just I think all of this stuff is totally fascinating and important, and it, it actually you know really connects with real life in a lot of ways that some philosophy doesn't obviously appear to. So uh, I will leave links in the description to the paper that I reference um, from Paul, and um, and to, to links to his websites and everything like that. And if you want to support this show. and uh, and keep me kind of focused on on what I'm doing here, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can share the show on Twitter or social media. That always helps. Uh, You can rate it on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that allows you to rate uh, a podcast. You can like it uh, on YouTube or subscribe. Uh, You can discuss it on your own show or connect me with uh, guests or recommend topics to cover. And you can get in contact with me At Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave.